You may be seated there. Have you ever been asked tough questions? Now, granted, some tough questions are a little bit humorous, like this one. Why do we park in a driveway and drive on a parkway? Or maybe why is the time of day with the slowest traffic called rush hour? Why does your nose run and your feet smell? Why is abbreviated such a long word? If pro is the opposite of con, is Congress the opposite of progress? And why do they call what doctors do practice? Isn't that just a little bit unnerving? Now, maybe you've been asked some tough spiritual questions too. Maybe things like, did Adam and Eve have a belly button? Or where did Cain get his wife? Or even one that many people like to go to, can God make a rock so big he can't move it? I'm not going to even answer that. If, you want, if, you, if, you, if that really bothers you, you can come talk to me afterwards. But in our passage today, we're going to see that Jesus gets asked two tough questions. They were tough, at least from the viewpoint of his enemies. But before we look at the passage, let's take a little bit just to look at the background for the passage. So the background is this. We've been in Luke 19 and now in Luke 20. In Luke 19, it's, we, we see it's the beginning there, and we're now in Luke 20. We're in the last week of Jesus' earthly life before he's crucified. He's already entered Jerusalem as king, riding on a, a donkey as a king coming in peace. One thing we don't usually think about is this. It's Passover week. Jewish families during Passover were to select, a, select the lamb, and it was to be a perfect lamb. It was not to have any defect, not to have any blemish. So that's going on. Text doesn't even mention that, but that's what's part of what's going on. I want you to keep that in mind because we're going to back, come back to that later on. After Jesus entered Jerusalem, he went into the temple. He threw out those who were buying and who were selling, and... For that and other reasons as well, many of the Jewish leaders, the Jewish leaders were looking for a way to kill him. We see that right at the end of chapter 19. Last week, we looked at the first part of chapter 20 from, or from verses 1 through 19. Greg covered this where the Jewish leaders asked Jesus, who gave you this authority? They were probably were referring to the authority, the authority to throw out the buyers and the sellers from the temple. But Jesus turns the tables on them in that. He asks them a question they wouldn't answer, but essentially he answers their question through a parable that shows he really is God's beloved son and that they're going to reject him. And the last verse we looked at last week was this, Luke 20, verse 19. It said, Then the scribes and the chief priests looked for a way to get their hands on him that very hour, because they knew he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. That's where we're going to pick up in our passage for tonight. Now, the passage splits up very easily into two sections. We're just going to call them, quite simply, question one 
and question two. So we're going to start looking at question one. Question one covers Luke 20, verse 20 through 26. So Luke 20, verse 20, going back to the passage, it says, they watched closely and sent spies who pretended to be righteous so that they could catch him and what he said to hand him over to the governor's rule and authority. The they there refers to, back to verse 19, to the scribes or the teachers of the law who were probably Pharisees, most likely Pharisees. What they do? Says they sent spies. Why did they send those spies? They wanted to catch him in what he said. Remember, they wanted to kill him. They wanted to get their hands on him. They were tired of Jesus. They didn't think he truly was the Messiah. He was causing all sorts of havoc. They wanted to catch him. Going on in verse 21, it says they questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and you don't show partiality, but teach truthfully the way of God. Now, everything that they say there is true. Jesus does speak and teach correctly. He doesn't show partiality, and he does teach truthfully the way of God. However, remember, they're trying to catch him. They don't really believe that. They're hypocrites. They're really, effectively, they're lying through their teeth here. And they get to the question, the first question then, in the next verse, in verse 22. They say, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? The Jewish leaders thought that this was the perfect trap. Why? The Jews hated paying taxes to Rome. In fact, one commentary I read said that the Jews actually paid almost a third of a person's income annually to Rome as a tax. Not only that, the Jewish people thought that the coins that they paid the taxes or the tribute with were really little idols that would be prohibited by the third commandment, don't make an idol for yourself. And in a sense, they were right about that because the backside of the coins at that time said Tiberius Augustus Caesar son of the divine Augustus. The Romans said that Caesar really was a god. So in a sense, the coins were kind of an idol. But the Jewish leaders, again, thought this was just the perfect trap. No way Jesus is going to be able to get out of this unscathed. The reason they thought that is this. If Jesus said it was lawful to pay taxes, the people hated paying taxes to Rome. They hated being under the Roman oppression. So if they if Jesus said it's lawful to pay taxes, people are going to turn against him. They aren't going to want, to want to follow him anymore. But I think they really hoped that he would say that it was unlawful to pay taxes to Caesar. Because if he said that, what would they do? They'd probably turn him over to the Roman authorities who likely would crucify him for rebelling against their authority. So they think they've got the perfect trap set for Jesus. So go on in the passage, verse 23 says, but detecting their craftiness, he, Jesus, said to them, show me a denarius whose image and inscription does it have? Caesar's, they replied. Now, a denarius was a silver Roman coin. It was worth about a day's wages. Just kind of as an aside, interestingly enough, Jesus didn't have a coin. He said, you know, show me one. He didn't have one with him. Maybe Jesus had never heard the prosperity gospel. I don't know. Maybe probably, probably nobody had explained it to him, I suppose. Quite likely. But anyway, just even for 
yeah, just, I, I put on the next slide, I have a picture, yeah, picture of a Roman denarius. This actually, it's amazing what, amazing the things you can get online now. This is actually a picture of the, of the denarius of Tiberius Augustus Caesar, who was the Roman emperor at the time. If you want to get one, you can buy one on eBay anywhere from $200 to $3,000, depending upon how good a condition it is. Now, if you just want to get a replica, you can get a replica for $6 plus shipping. So if, I, if I'd had enough time, if I'd thought of this earlier, I would have loved to have got one, but we just have to show you the picture. Anyway, Jesus knows. They, they think they've set the perfect trap for him. So he says, okay, give me a denarius. I don't have one, give me one. And then in verse 25, he answers their question. He says, well then, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Though the leaders thought they had set the perfect trap for him, Jesus gave the perfect answer. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, give to God the things that are God's. What are Caesar's? Well, the denarius is, obviously. How do we know it? It's got Caesar's image. It's got Caesar's likeness on that coin. What things are God's? We are. We're made in his image and in his likeness. There's a, at least two implications to Jesus' answer here. First implication is this. We're to obey the governing authorities. Romans chapter 13 tells this, as, this idea as well. It says, Paul wrote there, he said, let everyone submit to the governing authorities since there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. For this reason you pay taxes, since the authorities are God's servants. We are to submit to the governing authorities. For example, we should pay taxes. Our government provides services. We're to pay taxes to our government. Now, maybe just a couple other areas for possible application you could think about. Another area that we may want to obey, that we really should obey the governing authority is this. There's a speed limit on our roads. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands how many of you drive the speed limit, but have you ever thought about that as a way to obey the governing authorities? I do know this. Think about this. My dad, in, in his lifetime, he died when he was 85, my dad drove the speed limit. He never got a speeding ticket once in his lifetime. He didn't really even say anything to me about it, but so far, at least to date, I've tried to follow his example, drive the speed limit. I've never got a speeding ticket. If you do what the governing authorities say, you don't. In fact, that's what Romans 13 goes on in this passage to say. If you do what the authorities say, you don't have, you don't have to worry about getting a speeding ticket if you do what they ask you to do. Another one, I may step on some toes here. It's 4th of July weekend. Do you obey the laws of our state when it comes to fireworks? I remember when my kids were little, it's not that I personally have anything against fireworks, but I knew what the laws of our state were, and I didn't want to shoot off fireworks that were illegal. We didn't do anything other than, you know, sparklers and snakes and all those pretty boring ones. But I didn't want them to think, okay, dad breaks the law, so it's, it's okay for me to break the law, and if I break the law in one area, they may want to say, well, if he broke the law in this area, I can break the law in some other area. We are to obey 
the governing authorities. So the first implication of Jesus' answer, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar, Caesar's were to obey the governing authorities. The only exception to that is this, unless they tell us not to obey God. We see that in Acts chapter 5. The chief priests, the leaders of the Jewish nation had told Peter and the apostles, they said they were not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. So Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than man. If the governing authorities tell us that we're to do something that does not, you know, that we're to do something that does not go along with God's commandments, then we do need to disobey those governing authorities. So first implication of Jesus' answer, we're to obey the governing authorities unless they tell us not to obey God. Second implication of Jesus' answer, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, give to God the things that are God. We are to give ourselves to God because we're made in his image. Scriptural passage that shows this most clearly is back in the beginning of the Bible, very first chapter, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, or verse 26. It says, Then God said, let, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. The theological term for this is amago deo, which is Latin for the image of God. We are made in the image of God. We're made in his likeness, soul and spirit. Psalm 139 verses 13 and 14 have this idea as well. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Some translations say fearfully and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. Thinking about these two passages, came up with this statement. I think this is true. You can evaluate it yourself. I do believe this. Issues with our self-image can be resolved when we believe that we are wonderfully made in God's image. Now, there's many problems and issues in our culture. I really, truly believe they would be resolved if we believe Genesis 1, if we believe Psalm 139, that we're made in God's image, that we're wonderfully made in God's, in God's image. Just to illustrate that, do that briefly just from my own life. When I was in elementary school, I wore husky jeans. I like to eat, I like to eat sweets, I ate more than what I needed. Elementary school age kids, as most of you know, can be cruel. I was kidded by, the, by my classmates that essentially they said, oh, okay, you're gonna have to marry one of the, there are two specific gals in our class, you're gonna have to marry one of them who tends to be more overweight, the implication was, like I was. Even after I got into high school, I was in sports, slimmed down, I was practicing, working almost every day. I still had issues with my self-image, but when I put my faith in Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord, and I started to believe the things that he said in his word, my self-image improved. In fact, this week in our community group, one person told of a friend of hers who's, who even though she has professed belief in Christ, she said she's struggled all her life with her self-image, 
and she struggled with her gender identity and that she'd even, quote, transition to another gender. We have all sorts of problems in our society, in our culture, because people do not believe that they're made in God's image and that they're wonderfully made. Now, this service, we don't have very many who are parents. There's a few looking around here. Most tend to have more students, but some of you who are students, you can file this away for future reference. I wish I'd thought of this myself. I didn't, but my son, John, has done this. Do you want to have a good way you can build this principle, this belief in the life of your kids? My son, John, often asks his only daughter, my only, do- my only granddaughter, Aviana, he'll say, Avi, do you know you're beautiful? And she'll kind of giggle and say, yes, daddy. And then he asks her, who made you beautiful, Avi? And he's taught her to answer, God did. She's beginning to understand that she's made in God's image and that she is wonderfully made. So we need to realize, we need to recognize one of the implications of Jesus' answer that we were to give to God the things that are God's, were made in God's image and were wonderfully made. Now, so we started off in the background. I said, remember, the time that all this is happening, Jesus is being asked, it's Passover week. The Passover lambs were being, had been selected by each family. They were to be inspected by the Jewish priests. As we look at Jesus' answer to the first question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? We can see that the perfect lamb of God, the lamb of God that all those Passover lambs were to represent, has been examined, he's been questioned, and in this case, he's been found perfect. He has no defect. Going on to question two then, second part of the passage, verses 27 through 40. Verse 27, it says, some of the Sadducees who say there's no resurrection came up and questioned him. The Sadducees said that there was no resurrection. You can see this in Acts chapter 23. However, the opposing party to the Sadducees were the Pharisees. They believed in the resurrection. The Old Testament really does teach the resurrection, that there is, that there will be a resurrection. I'll give you one example. Don't have it on the overheads. If you're taking notes, you can write it down in your notes in Psalm 16. Psalm 16, verses 9 through 11. David wrote this. He said, Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Sheol was the abode of the dead, the resting place of the dead. So he said, you're not going to abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Even though the body might undergo undergo decay, his soul wouldn't undergo decay. He said, you'll make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Even though the Old Testament, and that's just one instance, we can look at others, but the Old Testament teaches about the resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. So you go, well, why didn't they believe in the resurrection, Bruce, if the Old Testament teaches about the resurrection? The reason they didn't believe in the resurrection was because they gave priority to the first five books of the Bible, the books that were written by Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they thought since those books did not mention the resurrection, they didn't think that the resurrection was true. Some people will say that's why they were called the Sadducees. They were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. 
That didn't go over very well, did it? Okay. Well, we tried. Okay, so anyway, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. The opposing party, the Pharisees did. Verse 28 then, the Sadducees, the Sadducees are having their, their shot now. The, the scribes, for the most part, were Pharisees. They couldn't trip Jesus up with their trap questions. So the Sadducees in verse 28 come up and say, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother has a wife and dies childless, his brother should take the wife and produce offspring for his brother. Now we see here even the priority they gave to Moses' writings. They start off right away. Teacher, Moses wrote for us. And what they do is they quote from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5. Didn't put it on the slides. You can look it up yourself if you want. But essentially in Deuteronomy 25, it talks about that if a man died, his brother was to marry his wife and have children so that those children then would take on the, the first brother's name so his name, quote, will not be blotted out. They wanted his name to be carried on. As my wife and I were talking about this this week, Becky threw this out to me. She said, do you think people think this is teaching polygamy? And I hadn't even thought of it. I wasn't planning on touching on it, but I thought, well, maybe some of you will think that, so I'm just going to give my two cents worth on that right now for just a little bit. I don't think this is teaching polygamy in any way, shape, or form. It's saying here, it's just saying the man's name is supposed to be carried on, so the brother is supposed to marry, marry the wife. Now, Jesus himself said in Matthew 14, if you look at verses 4 through 6, he said, God's purpose from the beginning was for the two to become one, husband and wife to become one. Even if there were many men in the Old Testament, men like Abraham, Jacob, David, Solomon, who did have more than one wife, God's purpose from the beginning, Jesus said, has always been one man, one wife, the two should become one. So that's all I'm going to say about that. But going on, the Sadducees then say, okay, teacher Moses wrote this. So in verse 29, they say, now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. Also the second and the third took her. In the same way, all seven died and left no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now that's an incredible scenario. Some of you maybe have seen the old musical, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. This is one bride for seven brothers, you know, different twist. One pastor that I actually listened to kind of, as he was teaching on this passage, he said, makes you wonder what kind of cook she was. He told this story, he said, a man came home, young man, young husband, his young wife's crying. He said, honey, what's wrong? And she threw her tears, she said, well, I cooked a special supper for you. And the dog jumped up on the table and ate it. And she kept crying. He said, oh, honey, that's okay. Don't worry. We can get another dog. <laughs> anyway, they get this incredible scenario. You know, got seven brothers. They all die. None of them have kids. Now, I don't know about you. If I'm brother number four, after brother number three, you know, kicks off, I'm hightailing it for the far country like the prodigal son. It's like, but anyway, that's the, that's the scenario. And then they really get in verse 33 to the question. This is their trap for Jesus. They say, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife 
will the woman be? For all seven had married her. Now, remember, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. So you may go, well, how's that compute? Why are they asking whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? The reason for that likely is the Pharisees believed essentially that in the next life, everything was going to be pretty well the same as it was in this life. In fact, I even heard uh, that they would say like, well, you're going to have the same clothes in the, in the next life. You're going to have the same relationships, including marriage. So since they didn't believe in the resurrection, because it wasn't taught in the first five books of Moses, they thought this ridiculous scenario that they concocted would prove the Pharisees was, were wrong, that there's no resurrection, because it just didn't make any sense for seven brothers to all be married to one woman, you know, in the next life. Apparently, the Pharisees had never answered this question the Sadducees had to their satisfaction. And you know what? They didn't think Jesus could do it either. They thought, we got a question that'll stump him. He's not, you know, we're right. You know, we'll, we'll show this, quote, teacher. And in verse 29, it says, Jesus answered them. Well, see, excuse me. This is not verse 29. It's in my notes. In in the parallel passages to Luke 20, the parallel passages in, Mark, in Matthew 22 and Mark 12 both note that Jesus said this in his response, even though Luke didn't choose to include it. But I wanted to put it in here for our consideration. It says, Jesus answered them. So in Matthew, Jesus said, Jesus answered them, you're mistaken because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. So then Luke carries on with what Jesus said after that. It says, Jesus told them, the children of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to take part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. So Jesus is really saying to him, he says, you don't know the scriptures. You don't know what the scriptures say about the differences between this age and the next age. They didn't know that marriage was just for this life or this world and not for the next age, for eternal life. Now, I asked myself the question, I go, I know the New Testament teaches that clearly. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32 says that marriage is to be a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. In Revelation 19, in verse 7, it says Jesus is going to come, the wedding supper of the Lamb, he's going to, he will be, you know, he's going to come as a bridegroom. He's going to be married to his bride, the church. In the next world, apparently we are not married to anyone but the Lord. But I thought to myself, well, they didn't have that, the New Testament at this time. So where does it teach that in the Old Testament? I came up with just a couple verses. I think that these could be what he was thinking, but this is just my... If you don't, you know, if you disagree with me, that's fine. This is just my thinking, but I didn't see that in Isaiah 54, verse 4. Isaiah said this, he said, Indeed, your husband is your maker. He's writing to Israel. Israel was were God's people at the time. He's, so he's essentially implying that God, God's people would be wedded to their maker, their creator. Likewise, Hosea chapter 2, you may remember if you've read through the book of Hosea, Hosea was told by God to marry a prostitute because essentially the prostitute represented what his people had done. But in Hosea 2, 19 and 20, it says, I will take you, and the context there shows 
that you is referring to Israel, God's people. He says, I'll take you to be my wife forever. I'll take you to be my wife in righteousness, justice, love, and compassion. I'll take you to be my wife in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord. So Jesus is saying, you don't know the scriptures. You don't know that marriage is just for this age. It's not for the next age. Now, it doesn't mean necessarily, I do believe we'll know our loved ones. They know the Lord in the next life. But he's just saying, in the next life, God's going to be, we're going to be his bride. The church will be his bride. He will be our, you know, our, our uh, husband there in the next life. But he said, you don't know the scriptures. And then he also said, you don't know the power of God. And in verse 36, it says, Jesus goes on, he says, for they can no longer die because they're like angels and are children of God since they're children of the resurrection. They didn't know the power of God. They didn't know that God could raise them from the dead so that in the next age, they would no longer die. And then he goes right to the heart because the Sadducees did not believe, did not really put any credence to anything other than the first five books, the Pentateuch, first five books of the Old Testament. And he says in verse 37, he says, Moses, their authority, Moses even indicated in the passage about the burning bush that the dead are raised, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's referring here to a passage the Jews all knew well that when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter three, in fact, the verse, verse five says, don't come any closer, remove the sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy ground, is what God says to Moses. And then in verse six, it says, he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Jesus answers the Sadducees' question by pointing out the tense of the verb. God did not say, I was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. They weren't dead. They were still alive. He still was their God. So he shows the Sadducees from the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, that they really didn't know the scriptures. They really didn't know the power of God. And Jesus concludes with this in verse 38. He says, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living because all are living to him. In verse 39, it says, some of the scribes answered, answered, teacher, you've spoken well, and they no longer dared to ask him anything. I don't think I would want to try to question Jesus either after that point. Remember, the scribes were Pharisees, most likely. The Sadducees had bothered them with this question. They'd never been able to answer it, apparently. Jesus had spoken well. They didn't want to ask him anything. So, again, going back to the idea, setting for this, part of the setting for this is it's Passover week. Remember in Passover week, the lamb was to be inspected to make sure that it was perfect, that it was, there was no defect, no blemish in it. And in answering the second question, essentially the second question is, is there a resurrection? Again, the lamb of God has been examined He's been found to be perfect once again. So that's the passage. Going to close tonight. We're not going to go real long. We'll just close with a couple of applications. There's a lot of things you could use from this passage. First application I gave is this. We need to give ourselves to God. 
Jesus said, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, give to God the things that are God. We've made the case that, yeah, we are to obey the governing authorities unless they tell us not to obey God, but we're to give to God the things that are his, our lives, our bodies, our worship. In fact, Paul said this in Romans 12 and verse 1. He said, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. So I ask, yourself, I ask you this question. Have you given yourself to God? Jesus is the perfect lamb who takes away our sin. When we trust his death on the cross, is the perfect sacrifice. Have you placed your trust in him? If not, what are you waiting for? Why not make today the day that you put your trust in Jesus, that you cross over the line from death to life? That you present yourself to him, present your bodies to him as a living sacrifice. So that's the first application. Because we're made in the image of God, we're to give ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. Second application. We started out, I started out talking about tough questions. The Jewish leaders thought they had the tough questions that would trap Jesus, but he really passed their unwitting examination, he proved that he was the perfect lamb of God. The Sadducees had all the Old Testament scriptures, but they didn't know them as well as they thought they did. They chose to regard the first five books of the Bible, but effectively ignore the rest of the Old Testament. And I thought about this, I thought, have you ever done this? I know that I have. Though I placed my trust in Christ, as I told you, when I was a senior in high school, all I'd been taught in my life up to that point in time, public school education, I'd been taught evolution, I believed it. I even remember a time, I could, if I had more time, I could tell you, I remember that I kind of shot down the first evidence I ever heard about um, creationism. I heard in a high school class, and I thought that I, boom, shot it down just be, with the question I answered, but we're not going to go into that, don't have time. But I just thought evolution was true. That's all I'd ever been taught. So therefore, I didn't think that the book of Genesis was true. So I reasoned if part of the Bible wasn't true, well, I could ignore other parts that I didn't want to believe. So as a result, my relationships with others and with gals didn't always honor the Lord. What changed that for me was a pastor who questioned me, and he asked me this question. He said, is there anything in the Bible that you have doubts about, Bruce? And I was honest with him. I told him some of the things that I had doubts about. And we talked about them and we looked at them. And as we, as we looked at it, I found more and more reasons. And over the years, I have completely changed my prior viewpoint. I put my confidence in what God says in his word from the very first page on. That made a huge change, a tremendous difference in my life. So I just challenge you with that. The second application that I put down then is this. They've got it on the overhead there already. We need to know what the scriptures, we need to know the scriptures and believe what they say and not choose only those things we want to believe. Essentially, that's what I was doing. I was choosing just what I wanted to believe. We need to know the scriptures, believe what they say, and not just choose the things that we want to believe. Honestly, if the pastor, if my 
pastor who discipled me later on, he officiated our wedding. I don't think I'd be here today if he hadn't asked me that question. So I'd ask you that. Do you know the scriptures? Do you believe what they say from the first page on? Now, you may have honest doubts. That's okay. I had honest doubts too. Bring them out. Talk to somebody about them. We really need to know what God says. That Jesus said the Sadducees were in error because they didn't know the scriptures and they didn't know the power of God. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you. I thank you for this passage. I thank you, Lord, for Jesus' wisdom. He does show that he is the perfect Lamb of God and his responses to these questions where his opponents tried to trap him, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that we are to give ourselves to you, that you've made us in your image. Not only are we to give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but we're to give to you, Lord, the things that are yours. May we each one here today give ourselves completely to you, myself included there, Lord. And help us, Lord, too, to know your scriptures, to believe what they say. May we not be like the Sadducees and not knowing the scriptures or the power of God. Thank you, Lord, for your powerful word. Change our lives with it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.